Hey Christ City, my name is John and I'm the executive pastor here and today we're jumping back into our idolatry series and I've been asked to speak on the topic of covetousness, on covetousness. Uh, funnily enough, when I got home and I told Sarah, my wife, that I was to speak on this topic, uh, she laughed, which is either tells you this is going to be a great sermon or a terrible sermon, I'm not sure uh, which one yet, but the reason she laughed is because uh, one of our light-hearted marital conflicts at the moment is my desire to buy a paddleboard. A paddleboard. Yes, I, I know that I want to buy the most expensive one. I know that I have two young children and it probably won't get used a lot. It's probably a bit premature for them. And I know that I've never ridden a paddleboard. In fact, I don't even know if that's the right language to use on a paddleboard. And I, I know that I didn't even know what a paddleboard was before I moved to Vancouver. But, but none of that matters because I feel like I need one. You know, I need one. We're at a bit of a stalemate and you can pray for us. Of course, I'm half joking. Because, because in all seriousness, I, I honestly think that covetousness is, is one of, if not the, cultural idol of our city. It's one of the cultural blind spots of our city, and so we need to be attentive to it. I was, um, I was talking to Brett earlier this week, and, and he told me that he drove past a billboard for a housing development, and on it, on the, in the marketing, on the, on the billboard, it said, the most coveted neighborhood in Vancouver. The most coveted neighborhood in Vancouver. As if to affirm for us, in big, bold letters, that covetousness isn't a sin to be warned about in our city, it is the fire that fuels our city. So here's what we're going to do. I want to unpack covetousness for us this morning under the title of A Life of Covetousness. And then I want to look at an alternative life that Jesus offers that I'm going to call A Life of More. A Life of More. So we have two points this morning instead of the usual three, but don't worry, they're very, very long points. Point one is a life of covetousness, and point two is a life of more. So a life of covetousness. When uh, Jesus tells the parable of the rich fool, honestly, honestly, our reaction can be at first glance that Jesus is being unreasonable. It feels unreasonable, doesn't it? When you, when you think about the story, Jesus tells this story of a, of a farmer who has a successful career. He institutes a pretty solid savings plan and then retires comfortably. It all, it all feels wise. And it begs the question, should we not work hard, save well, and then retire comfortably like the farmer? That's the Vancouver dream, isn't it? to start our own business, for that business to do well, for us to invest well, and then to spend our retirement in the Okanagan sipping wine? Maybe that's your life plan. In fact, maybe you've written that down somewhere as your life plan. What's wrong with that? Is this a case of Jesus being unreasonable? Or maybe even a bit naive for a 21st century life. Maybe, maybe Jesus is just being boring. Maybe he doesn't want you to have nice things. 
I think what we need to do in order to understand the parable is we need to start with the warning that precedes the parable. So look with me at verse 15. Jesus says, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. He says, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Now, we should probably start today by asking ourselves the question, what is covetousness? What is covetousness? Well, the word that we translate to covet in the Bible is all over our Bibles in the Old and the New Testament, but it's most famously in the 10th of the Ten Commandments in Exodus. So in Exodus it says, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. To covet, the word covet simply means to strongly desire something, almost to to lust after something or someone that isn't yours. It's It's an internal desire that begins with an I want. And maybe it's a good thing, but it begins with an I want. But the the desire is so strong in us that it very quickly becomes I need. And because it's comparative, because it's your neighbor's stuff, it often becomes, I deserve. So it goes, I want, and then I need, and then it goes, I deserve. And so you look at what someone else has and you say, I deserve that. So it's a desire that starts with, I'd like his wife. And that desire burns in us and it moves to, I need his wife. And then we can justify in ourselves adultery because guess what? We deserved his wife. Or it's a desire that starts with, I want his stuff. I want my neighbor's stuff. And then then it moves to, I need. And then it's, I deserve my neighbor's stuff. And then we justify stealing. It's the desire behind some of the other commandments. I was thinking about this, and, and maybe as a congregation, we think to ourselves, oh, we, you know, we'd never go as far as stealing. That's just not who we are, although I would caution that, that we're not beyond that. But what about the thing that you determine that you deserve because your neighbor has one, and then, then you just reorganize your finances in order to get it, not considering at all what is sacrificed in the process? Well, maybe we won't go as far as adultery. We don't, again, we're not beyond that. But what started as as this good and right desire for a spouse, you, you wanted a spouse, but it moved, didn't it? From I want a spouse to I need a spouse. And then you see other people have it and you say, no, but I deserve a wife or a husband. And the result of it is that you can't attend weddings anymore because all it does is produce in you resentment and bitterness. It's hard. Covetousness is a strong, almost insatiable desire for what other people possess. But it's more than a desire. Interestingly, 
when the Bible speaks of covetousness, it's often spoken about synonymously with idolatry. Look at what Paul says in Colossians 3. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Jesus, in our text, he's going to unpack covetousness as idolatry. He says, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. But why? But why? Because one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Do you see? You see, if you reverse engineer that sentence, what Jesus is saying is that beneath covetousness, beneath this desire, is an assumption about the consistency of life. Beneath covetousness is a, is a worldview. It's a, a perspective of life that sees the purpose of life, the meaning of life, the, the fulfillment that you can find in life, the goal of life, the, the very consistency of life in the acquiring consumption and enjoyment of things. So coveting after possessions isn't simply an inclination towards nice things. It's not a, a desire for nice things. It's a disposition of the heart that looks to things to provide contentment, satisfaction, meaning, value in our lives. That's why it's idolatry. It says, if I had his house, then I would be content. If I had her job, then I would be satisfied. If I had his wife... Coveting is a disposition of the heart that looks to things to provide contentment, satisfaction, meaning, and value to our life. It's idolatry. But if covetousness is such a blind spot for us, how do we know that we suffer from it? You know, we can't, we can't see it. Okay. Let me give you three characteristics of a life of covetousness seen in the parable. And, and, and your task today is to maybe think, are any of these familiar? It's a challenge for us. So here's the parable again. The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. So what does a life of covetousness look like? Well, firstly, we have to notice that there is no reference to the plan or provision of God. There's no reference to God's plan or provision in the man's life. God is not absent from the parable, but the man lives as if he is. You notice the, the possessive language that he uses throughout. It's my crops and my barns and my grain and my goods and even my soul. You see, it's a, a feature of the life of covetousness that it never reflects upon, meditates on, considers or acknowledges God's plan and purpose for our lives, God's provision for our lives. You notice again when you look at the parable that the amount of times the man says, I, 
What shall I do? I shall do this. I will tear down. I will store. I will say. This man is so self-absorbed that he talks to himself about himself. His life is a monologue with no regard for God. So the first indicator of covetousness in us might be that we never consult God or consider God in our life plans. Has God spoken into your business strategy? Do you consider God when you're, when you're financially planning, in your family plans, in your job search, in your relationships, in your purchases, in your parenting? Or do you live a life with or without reference to God? As an aside here, this is why it's important to start the day in God's word so that we don't live this monologue. We live a dialogue that we respond to the word of God in our lives. And so we consider what his plan and purpose is. So first, we have no reference to God. That's the first feature. The second is, the second thing to notice is that ironically, you've never got enough. It's curious to note that the farmer's existing barns weren't big enough. You see, a life of covetousness is never satisfied. And this isn't a Christian insight. This is, it seems like everyone knows this. There's, um, there's a great quote from John D. Rockefeller, who was the wealthiest man in modern history. And he was once asked the question, how much money does it take to make a man happy? And he said, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. Just one more dollar. Now bear with me, but it reminds me of um, a character in Greek mythology called Tantalus. And Tantalus was, was punished by the gods and he was made to stand in, in a, a lake and, and under a fruit tree. And every time he reached up to the fruit tree, the fruit would move away and so it would be just out of his reach. And every time he went down to drink from the water, it would recede and he wouldn't, ab wouldn't be able to drink. It was, that's where we get the word tantalizing from. Something is tantalizingly close. He lived in perpetual hunger and thirst because satisfaction was always just that far away. It was just one more dollar to make him happy. That's what a life of covetousness feels like. Our barns could always be bigger. Our homes could always be nicer. Our bank accounts could always be fuller. It's never enough. And Christ said, you, you, you need to know this. There's a reason it's never enough. Our idols are never enough because they're not enough. So no reference to God. You, you never have enough. And the third characteristic of a life of covetousness is that because there is never enough for you, guess what? There's never enough for others either. You'll notice that not only is God not referenced in this parable, but no one else is mentioned either. And Jesus says, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? As if to say, you live for yourself, there's no one else. You see, when we live from a place of deficit, the last thing on our minds is generosity. Let me say that again. When we live from a place of deficit, the last thing on our minds is generosity. 
So another indicator of covetousness in us might be a lack of generosity. And so when was the last time that we were generous? It's a good question, potentially a painful question. So that's what a life of covetousness looks like. But probably more disturbing is how it ends. This is how the parable ends. But God said to him, fool. This night your soul is required of you. And the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The ultimate problem of coveting is that all of it fades. You're building kingdoms that fade. The tragedy of this story is that this man has lived a life of self-determined purpose, of self-defined meaning. He's lived for himself and no one else. And at the end of his days, God, the God of creation, says, you've wasted it. It should sober us. It's a life of covetousness. And Jesus says, fool. But what about the alternative? Point two is a life of more. A life of more. It's worth noting that after the parable, after having just spoken to the crowd about this parable of a rich man, he now, he now turns and speaks specifically to his relatively poor disciples. So he turns from the crowd in general to his disciples specifically. And he says, don't be anxious. Don't be anxious about food or clothes because life is more than those things. And then he goes on to say, instead of seeking after those things, seek the kingdom. Seek the kingdom. What's he doing here? Well, if we're to understand Jesus' teaching at all, then we have to know that Jesus isn't simply in the business of a desire modification, desire management. And what I mean by that is Jesus didn't come and say, look, coveting is bad because, you know, it, it's never enough and, and it leads to selfishness. And so what you need to do is you need to get a grip of your desires. You need to contain them and maybe suppress them even uh, for the sake of your own well-being and for the sake of others. He didn't say that. Jesus didn't come simply to manage your idols. He came to dethrone them. You see, if idolatry is, as Romans 1 says, this, this exchange, this exchange of worship between the creator God and created things, that we have exchanged worshiping the creator for created things, and as a result, we have exchanged life for death, Jesus came to reverse the process. He came to exchange our deserved death for his life on the cross. That's why he came. He didn't, he didn't come to just simply teach us. He came to rescue us. Colossians says that God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is the good news of the gospel. This is why he turns and talks specifically to his disciples. 
He's come to transfer them from a kingdom that falls and fails to an everlasting kingdom. That's what it means to be a Christian. To live with, with Jesus as king and to inherit a kingdom, a kingdom that will not end. You have to know this. What is offered in Christianity is more. It's not less. Okay. So how do we live into this? How do we as, as Christians, having, having put Jesus as, as Lord and King, and, and how do we live into this kingdom? How do we live kingdom-shaped lives? Well, we, we've talked before uh, we talk about this in, in, in our biblical counseling ministry, but we've talked before about the biblical pattern of change that we see in Ephesians 4. It's a three-step process, and this is how it goes. It says, first, you put off. Second, there's this renewal of our minds. And third, you put on. So you put off, renew, put on. And so what do we do? Well, we put off. How do we live into this? We put off. We repent of our covetousness. We repent. We repent of the times that we have turned back to those failing kingdoms. We let go of the things that we hold on so tightly to. And secondly, we have our minds renewed. Jesus says, consider the birds, consider the flowers of the field, consider God's providence, consider his provision and his plan for your life. Consider God. Think biblically. Let the Bible inform who you think God is and, and who it says you are. Think upon, meditate upon God's plan for your life. And then we put on. We seek his kingdom. We seek his kingdom. We seek now to live in response to and in light of this new king on the throne of our lives. You see, woven into the Christian life is this, is this continual reference to the provision and purposes of God. We say, your will be done in our lives. Daily, we come to this, this Father who loves us and knows us and cares for us and knows all that we actually need. And he purposes every breath that we have, every day that he gives us. What a joy. And so as Christians, our financial plans, our, our family plans, our, our jobs, our business strategies, our parenting, our purchases, our relationships, they, they all are under both the direction of our King Jesus and his care. And here's the result of this in our lives. When we, when we truly get this, when we truly understand God's, God's care for us, when we truly understand Jesus' kingship in our lives, this is how it manifests itself. First, we're content. We have enough because he's enough. We live lives contented because we have a father in heaven who cares for us more than the birds and the flowers. We have a treasure that is in heaven. It's not here and fading, but it's secure. Jesus says, provide for yourselves. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. 
You'll find contentment. But second, because you have enough, your life will overflow naturally to others. There will be enough for others too. I love how verse 33 is one of the most terrifying uh, lines in the Bible for us. It says, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Now, we, we love to skip over that. I love to skip over that. But it's terrifying until you realize what precedes it. Look at the context. Verse 32 says, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. That has to be one of the greatest Bible verses there is. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Christ said to you, you know when it's easy to be generous? <laughs> when you know that you've been graciously given the kingdom. As I close... I just wanted to say that I think some of us, I'm sure, are holding on to our idols and we don't want to let them go. And maybe this series is provoking in us a reaction that, that shows us that we're not letting go, we're actually gripping tighter. So let me end with this. I was reading the other day about something called a monkey trap. Now bear with me. Uh, centuries ago, somewhere in Southeast Asia, some clever hunter came up with a trap. And the idea is that you get something like a coconut, you, you make a hole in it and you put some food in it and you attach the coconut to the ground. And, and what happens is the monkey comes, puts his hand in to grab the food, and because it's got a fistful of food, can't pull out its fist. It's trapped. And the monkey, because it's a monkey... Won't let go of the food despite its impending death, despite the, the, far, uh, the farmer or the hunter coming, but sacrifices also the abundance of the entire world for this food that won't even satisfy it. Idolatry is a monkey trap. In our sinfulness, we hold on to our things even though they don't satisfy and they lead to our death. And I know that I could, I, could, I could try and persuade you, let go. But you won't. I could try and, and force your grip open. But your eyes are still on the fruit. I know this because people have tried with me many times. You can't pry off an idol. If you hear only this today, you need to know that the only answer to covetousness, this strong, almost insatiable desire within us, is something or someone more desirable. You see, Jesus didn't come to suppress your affections, Christ said, He came to capture your affections. And it's only when we understand the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, when we, when we see him as he is, when we, when we know him as he is, when we see the beauty of Christ, when we behold him, as the hymn says, the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. You want to know how to release the grip of idolatry? Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Let's pray.
Father in heaven. Forgive us for the sin of covetousness. Forgive us when we have been laid up with treasures for ourselves, when we have, when we have made little kingdoms for ourselves and we have not been rich towards you. We thank you, God, that it is your good pleasure to give us the kingdom. And we ask now that you would, by the power of your spirit, put to death covetousness in us, that we would fix our gaze on Jesus. And that we might know that you are the only one who can satisfy our soul. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you are part of a house church, you can go ahead and prepare the bread and the wine or juice and maybe take a second to consider the provision and plan that God put in place in Christ in giving himself for you. And also spend some time repenting for any covetousness in your life.